You're listening to Season 8 of Bionic Planet, now brought to you by Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. Sponsors do not participate in the production of Bionic Planet. Like most of us Kenyans, Priska Mayenda divides her time between the city and the countryside. When she's in Nairobi, she says, she longs for her four-acre farm in Bungoma, about 50 kilometers east of the Ugandan border. That's her place, and it's where she was a decade ago when she got a visit from a man on a motorcycle. He was just moving around, uh, looking for farmers who are in groups. Well, Priska Mayende was in a group, or more specifically, a water cooperative, and she loved trees. So when he was asking some of the communities, then he said, they said Mama Priska is one of the, the farmer who is interested in doing the, the agroforest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's you as Mama Priska? I'm the one. I'm okay. Mama Priska. For the sake of our new listeners, agroforestry means planting trees in among traditional food crops to protect them from the hot sun and fix nitrogen, while leaves provide fodder for livestock. Agroforestry is great for the climate because carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide are powerful greenhouse gases, and agroforestry pulls carbon and nitrogen out of the air and infuses them into the soil where they become fertilizer. Done right, agroforestry can also increase yields, although that's not guaranteed. For that reason, shifting to agroforestry can be risky, and that's where the man on the motorcycle comes in. My name is Makanda Hisa. I work for VI Agroforestry in Bumula. Makanda Kisa, or Johnny, as most people here call him, was looking for farmers who'd be willing to try agroforestry. It was a hard sell for most, but not for all. People really feared that maybe when there are trees in the farm, the production cannot be good. But Priska Mayende took the plunge and within three years, her farm was covered in trees and the birds had returned. But what about her corn, her sugar, her potatoes? Well, that's where things get interesting and it's where this guy comes in too. We, I think, have all forgotten that food starts in soils. We have disconnected the food chain. That's Emmanuel Faber, the CEO of Danone. You know, the yogurt people? In 2014, Danone took a 40% stake in Kenya's largest dairy company, Brookside, which buys milk from farmers like Priska, people who've often grazed cows in the forest and chopped trees for firewood. Takin Arnold runs a farmer's cooperative about 60 kilometers northeast of Priska Mayende's farm. Most of them used to go and cut trees or cut firewood in the forest come and sell. But because of the market that Brookside has brought here, some farmers have left the cutting of trees and now embarked on selling to Brookside. Yes. Danone bought into Brookside partly to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from its supply chain by getting closer to the farmers who supply it with milk. But after struggling to make such initiatives on their own, they had also started using carbon markets to accelerate that transition. With carbon finance, they were able to deploy methodologies that have been developed over several years through multiple iterative rounds of expert review and public consultation. This didn't mean they were going to get everything perfect, because nothing ever is but it meant that they were going to be using the best available science and also contributing to making it better. We are now going to be 
responsible for the carbon emissions of the full cycle of our processes. From the farms, the hundreds and thousands of farmers that we work with, to our billion of consumers in the world. Today on Bionic Planet, part four of our continuing series on carbon finance in Kenya. Today's show focuses on a theme that we'll be exploring in the weeks ahead, namely how project developers engage the people who actually make those projects work on the ground. This piece is excerpted from an episode we produced called Of Milk and Money, which we first ran in 2016. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Nor the trees, nor the seas, nor the forests, farms or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of this. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live in a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And nowhere is that impact more deeply felt than in small-scale farming. That's because 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from our impact on forests, farms, and fields, and half of all deforestation associated with agriculture comes from smallholders acting out of desperation, not greed. We can regulate the big players, but the smaller ones need help. What's more, agriculture, and by extension our global food supply, is especially vulnerable to climate change. That's why Climate Smart Agriculture is a cornerstone of the Paris Climate Agreement. Climate Smart Agriculture reduces emissions in two ways, in part by increasing yields, which reduces the pressure to move into forest, and in part by revitalizing soil, which then stores more carbon and nitrogen. For more details, check out episode 38, which focused on climate-smart agriculture within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and episode 84, called How to Build a Methodology, which focused on soil carbon within the voluntary carbon market. I'm your host, Tabitha Murioki, an environmental economist, and here is Steve Zwick with an updated version of this episode from 2016. I'm standing on the porch of a concrete bungalow at the base of Mount Elgon near Kenya's border with Uganda. The bungalow is painted in colors that all Kenyans immediately recognize, sky blue and pea green, the colors of Brookside Dairies, which controls more than 40% of Kenya's dairy market. The Kenyatta family owns half of the company, Danon owns 40%, and a private equity partnership called the Abraj Group owns 10%. This bungalow, however, doesn't belong to Brookside. It belongs to the Kaptama Farmers Cooperative, which is a crucial link in the long and intricate supply chain from your local grocery store 
from multinational food giants like Danon to small farmers like this guy. I'm Silas Cherongis. I'm 38 years. I've been farming more than 10 years. 10 years. I've been given a farm by my father, and I was uh, a local farmer. But through seminars and other trainings, I started practicing dairy farming. There is no school today, so kids have been helping out their parents, bringing in the milk for them, and Silas is the first adult to show up. Until now, it's just been young boys, most not even 10 years old, wearing rubber boots and sandals, carrying little cans of milk from nearby farms. One by one, they hand their cans to technicians overseen by this guy. Yes, I'm called Tekin Arnold. I'm the project coordinator of Kaptama Farmers Cooperative Society. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, this society started in 1958. So it was an old cooperative, mainly dealing with the buying cereals for farmers. But so we started basically uh, collecting the milk of farmers in November 2013. So, so far... We've collected over a million kilograms of milk, and the farmers have earned over 30 million Kenyan shillings. All the cans are small, and some are so tiny that it hardly seems worth the effort of carrying them this far. And there's a reason for that. In fact, it's a big part of why we're here. Each technician wears a long smock, and one of them has latex gloves, like a doctor. He uses a syringe to extract a small amount of milk from each can. There are several tests we conduct here. Then we are doing the alcohol test, and then we are doing the resazarin test, uh, that's the test of bacteria. So after doing that is when we can now write uh, the receipt or record to the farmer, uh, the quantity of milk is delivered, and then thereafter I'll enter the, the records into the computer. If it passes the test, it's poured into a bucket for weighing, and then into a 10-gallon milk churn. You know those tall, thin aluminum containers with two handles on the top? Each milk churn has a splash of sky blue paint around the rim, and later today Brookside will send a truck to pick up the haul. As the day goes on, motorcycles start coming in from farms just over the horizon, each laden with four milk churns, two on each side, a total of 40 gallons of milk for each haul. Then a truck comes from one of 14 collection points spread across Bungoma County. Something similar is happening all across Kenya every day at thousands of cooperatives drawing milk for more than 130,000 farmers into Brookside's processing plants. But the operations weren't always this smooth. A few years back, Brookside faced a milk shortage. So they did a little research and found that some farmers had given up on dairy because even a single cow is a major investment and the milk market was a day-to-day affair. On some days, farmers would show up with milk only to find no buyers. So Brookside guaranteed that they would buy whatever the farmers can produce. But they also noticed something else. In some parts of their territory, farmers brought in three liters per cow on a good day. In other parts, they brought in seven or more and consistently. Here the solution is a bit more complicated because they found that the farmers who generated the most milk weren't the ones grazing their cows in the forest, but were instead the ones who brought the forest to their land by planting trees. Remember what Taken Arnold said earlier. These are people who have their animals in the forest. So most of them used to go and cut, cut trees or cut firewood in the forest to come and sell. 
But because of the market that Brookside has brought here, some of those farmers have left the cutting of trees and now embarked on selling to Brookside. Okay, I'm Chris Kamayende. I'm a farmer. I'm Ignatius Sifuna-Rabitola. I'm a farmer. You know Prisco already, and Ignatius Sifuna-Rabitola lives about 10 minutes away. Both of their farms are lush and green and full of trees and birds and fruit and healthy patches of corn, cabbage, and potato. But it wasn't always like this. In the beginning, I was just doing, just farming like any other person. But uh, from 2010, I made VI. Mm -hmm. Then when they visited my farm, my farm didn't have anything like trees and the psalms Mm -hmm. were not there. The psalms she's talking about aren't biblical. They're agricultural. And they come from an acronym, S-A-L-M, which means Sustainable Agriculture Land Management. If you Google that, you'll find an NGO called VI Agroforestry. Remember Johnny, the man on the motorcycle? Well, he works for them, and they've been working in Kenya since 1983, reaching out to farmers and showing them how trees can pull nutrients out of the air and inject them into the soil. But trees also take up space that could be used for crops, so it's a balancing act. What's more, people in this region only started chopping trees in the last generation, and the soils initially held up. At the beginning, the farms were with the trees. Trees were there. Trees like uh, albensi, mm-hmm. albensia. Okay. Yeah, those trees were in the farms. So, in fact, the people where that tree was, you, you could find a lot of humors down there. By humors, she means nutrients. Some trees will pull them out of the air and inject them into the soil by, say, fixing nitrogen which means converting it into fertilizer. The farms were doing very well, but they started planting the sugarcane. They destroyed all the trees. That is where the problem now started. And even in the old days, you see there were a lot of rains when they had trees. But after people destroying trees, people started missing rain. This is something you'll hear from people around the world, whether in Kenya, Uganda, Brazil, or anywhere that forests have been scraped away for farms. Once the trees are gone, the rains stop coming. And there's a reason for that. But in a nutshell, forests draw moisture in across the land. They guide the so-called atmospheric rivers or sky rivers, and they also store water in their trunks and leaves. You can search for atmospheric rivers online, but here's what matters for now. Farmers across Bungoma chop trees to plant sugar cane, and then they alternately face dry spells and floods. So they formed the Nakwai Community Water Project. Naikai Community Water Project was formed by the community members. Uh, We sat down as a community because we had one objective, we didn't have water. They worked together to coordinate water usage and well drilling. And also the major problem that made us to at least to introduce to have water, our cow, our animals had a lot of problems because we could look for water from a very far distance. So it made us also uh, feel that we should look for water. Cows. They needed water for cows. Remember the dilemma that Brookside and Dannon faced? The wild fluctuations in milk production? How some farmers were consistent and others weren't? Well, that's a function of water and fodder. And it's where Johnny comes in. 
Johnny Makandihisa of VI Agroforestry. I saw him with a motorbike, then we greeted one another, then he asked me if I'm in a group. Then I said, yes, I'm in Naigai Community Water Project, that is my group. Then he asked me if at least we are interested of meeting visitors. Then I said, yes. Then I said, what type of visitors? Then he said, he introduced himself and said that he's working with the VI. VI Agroforestry has been active in Kenya for more than 30 years, and they've helped farmers across the country increase their yields by strategically planting trees. But they've always struggled to get funding. After all, agroforestry isn't something donors automatically understand. It's not sexy like climbing buildings and unfurling banners is, but it is effective and in more ways than one. You see, forests, farms, and fields absorb and emit carbon dioxide, not just via the trees, but via the soil. This is nothing new. Scientists have known about it for a long time. Healthy topsoil teems with life, and that means carbon. But as we churn through topsoil, we not only extract the nutrients that support agriculture, but we release carbon dioxide into the air, and lots of it, nearly 300 billion tons of carbon dioxide over the last 200 years, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Ratan Lal, a professor of soil science at The Ohio State University, says we can pull about 10% of our greenhouse gases out of the air and inject them into soils just by switching to climate-safe agriculture. And agroforestry is one part of that. So in 2007, to shore up its chronic funding shortfalls, VI Agroforestry took its 20 years of experience in Kenya and calculated the amount of carbon that its activities lock in the soil. Then it drew up a plan to finance its activities by selling carbon offsets, with most of the money going directly to farmers. In 2010, the World Bank decided to test the idea and gave VI Agroforestry money to get started. That's around the time that Prisca invited Johnny to pitch her water group on agroforestry. Our first meeting was the group of these farmers, the Naikai group, had heard about uh, VI Agroforestry, and they never knew exactly what we were doing. So when they invited me in their meeting, so I was to introduce myself and tell them what we fear Agroforest does with farmers. I remember at the beginning when he came, first of all, he told us the importance of planting trees because it was uh, something very difficult, I remember. In fact, he told us that uh, we as VI, we promote farmers to plant trees, at least to improve their livelihood. So one of them that people really admired was the firewood, because mm-hmm. Spania is part of firewood, and also something again other people also admired, Spania is also a fodder. Mm-hmm. It's a fodder mm-hmm. for the animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the time, Prisca didn't have a cow, and neither did a lot of her neighbors. Those who did often took them grazing in forests, and they also chopped trees for firewood. But every day in the forest was a day off the farm. And their activities accelerated deforestation and everything that comes with it, the dry spells, the floods, and the landslides. So after that, they accepted that they are going to work with us. So we recruited them. Mm-hmm. We sensitized them, and then we recruited them. Mm-hmm. Then after that, the first training, then he brought the seeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the seeds he brought, I remember, um, they were um, Saspania, 
to do farm plan layout. Agroforestry begins with farm plan layout, which involves dividing the farm into six or seven different plots so the crops can be rotated without ever leaving a field fallow. It's a big part of all this. Remember Ignatius Safuna Rebatola? To me, it was a, a new idea because in most cases we feel a, a farm should just be fallow so that it's easier for you to do the farming. But after the long discussion, then also training, it came to my, my knowledge that at least I should do an agroforestry. Yes. Ignatius joined the agroforestry program in 2009, before Prisca did, but they both started with typical Kenyan farms, about four acres each, devoid of trees, with rows of crops baking in the sun and maybe one fallow patch. I had some few trees inside here, but towards my farm, they had nothing like a tree. The farm was bare and there were no trees, there were no salm. It was just like that. Mm-hmm. But the moment we started training her, he started implementing immediately. Then he brought the, the other species, like Gruvilia, Godia, and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many. And once she started, others followed, thousands of them. In 2015, Environmental Auditing Group SCS Global Services audited the figures for 2012 to 2014 and found the carbon sequestration per farm was almost double the expected amount. And V Agroforestry had achieved its goal of pulling 150,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Today, the Mount Elgin program supports more than 30,000 family farms whose income has doubled on average, thanks to the increased soil fertility. The soil has, in fact, absorbed more than 1 million metric tons of carbon dioxide, while the methane emissions per gallon of milk have plunged, thanks to healthier cows. The program also uses Mutral, an additive we covered in 2017 in an episode called How Garlic Cloves and Orange Peels Cut Cow Barbs and Slow Climate Change. The Mount Elgon project was eventually absorbed into the Livelihoods Funds, which are a group of funds spearheaded by Danone, almost exclusively to offset its emissions and those of nearly two dozen other companies, including Mars, Schneider Electric, and Michelin, which all got green long before it was fashionable. The Livelihoods Fund work by teaming up with local NGOs like Via Agroforestry around the world and then working with them to launch new projects. When this series resumes, we will dive deeper into other Kenyan projects in the Kasigao Corridor, which is the farming region between Sava East and Sava West National Parks. We'll meet former poachers who've become forest rangers and hear from school administrators who've used carbon finance to rebuild dilapidated schools, although we may also drop a few other episodes in before getting to those. That's because these sorts of episodes take a lot more time to produce than do straight interviews. And while our sponsors, Vera and Responsible Alpha, do make the shows possible, we need your help to produce at scale. If you want more and better episodes, then consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash bionic hyphen planet. There you can support us for as little as a dollar an episode. Steve will be back in the host seat, but I'll be helping out as well. Until next time, I'm Tabitha Marioki. Thank you for listening.